right, well, good evening. It's already on. Forrest turned it on. Well, I think he turned it on. If you miss mine, you're, you're not going to miss much. So. All right, so this evening, the topic that's been assigned me is the Bible and science. Now, what's interesting about the subject of the Bible and science is um, when you start to look at what the purpose of the Bible is, it is not intended to be a science textbook. That's not what the Bible is. However, when we look at, when we look at what the Bible is about, um, turn with me to Psalm chapter 119, verse 160. Now, is there anybody here who reads out of the American Standard? The old ASV, the 1901 version. Anyone? No one? Okay. All right. I don't carry it around often. All right. Psalm 119. We'll read verse 160. So I kind of want this to frame the beginning of our thoughts here in Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. But it's the first part of that verse that I really want us to make sure that we recognize and realize. The entirety of your word is truth. So when we look through the Bible, we're going to see that we know that the Bible claims that we looked at inspiration, we've looked at prophecy, we're looking specifically at the Bible and science. And when you think about the Bible, and you think about when it was written, I want you to, to think for a moment, over all of these hundreds and thousands of years, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, as these letters have been written, right, think about what science was like, say, 150 years ago. Let's take, let's take you back to, say, the Civil War time, right? So we're in 1850s. Somebody gets shot on the battlefield, right? Did they give them some penicillin? No. They, so you're amputating legs left and right, right? So back it up a little further, right? And think about some of the medical practices that were engaged in in the 1700s. Or the, yeah, bleeding, right? You have a fever. You know how you fix a fever? Uh, we're going to bleed them, right? So they, the reason why you have a fever is because you have too much blood in you, and we need to take some of that out. And that fever's not going away, so I'm going to keep taking blood out until you finally get cold, right? And unfortunately, at that point, you're no more, right? It's so you think about what science and what medicine look like just a very short period of time ago. Now, let's back it all the way up to Moses' time, right? So now we've backed up a few thousand years and we're sitting here in Moses' time, I want you to think about what science looked like, what medical knowledge existed at that time. And that's kind of what I want to go through. So when we, think about, when we think about the Bible and what it has to say, the scriptures, where they mention things of a, of a scientific nature, they are true, they are credible, they are accurate. Now, it, the, the Bible didn't set itself out to be a, a science textbook. But sometimes when people say that, and they'll make the comment that, well, the Bible's not a science textbook, sometimes they're implying that, well, maybe some of the scientific principles that are mentioned in the Bible are, maybe they're not so good or they're not so accurate. Like, that's not the case at all. 
See, when I say that, what I'm telling you is it is absolutely, entirely, 100% accurate. The Word of God is true. And, but what it's saying is that's not the purpose of this book to be some sort of a science textbook. So when you think about what the word science just actually is, like the word science is a Latin term, uh, which that's where we get the word from, uh, scientia, which means knowledge. And so some of the definitions are knowledge based upon the observation and testing of facts worked into an ordered system acting as a base for new knowledge. Some of them will say it's a branch of study concerned with observations and classification of facts. And so science, sometimes, sometimes society has set up science and religion as being diametrically opposed. And because of that, we feel the need sometimes to take sides. Well, I know I'm on God's side, so that must mean that anything and everything to do with science is, let's cast it aside. Well, that's a, that's a very poor approach. And there's a reason sometimes why young people, when they go off to college and they begin to learn things, that if they hear us make poor arguments and they find out that those arguments really aren't true, well then, what else did you tell me that's not true? And so we must not be afraid of science, right? Of the right application of science. Because, well, I'm not afraid of truth wherever it's at. Truth is consistent with itself. God says, my word is truth, right? So when we think about truth, we should not be worried about truth. We should not be worried about where science takes us. Now, there are some issues, though, like when you think about, when you think about some of the issues that exist, because obviously we're not in agreement with everything, that um, science at large, so to speak, um, teaches. So you think about some of the things that science has taught over the years, so some of the common bodies of knowledge that existed over the years. I want to read a few of them here, right? So um, under the flag of science, here's some things that were taught. The eternality of matter, that matter has always existed. Or alchemy, they thought that they could turn any kind of metal into gold, you know, with you... You spend a little time and you can turn iron into gold or lead into gold. They thought the spontaneous generation of life. Uh, they thought there was um, there, there's something called the recapitulation theory. And what that is, is um, you may have even seen pictures of it perhaps in your textbooks and called Hackney's embryo, embryos. And it shows the, uh, a baby as, it's, as the embryo as it's forming. And it says, oh, look, it looks like a lizard here. And oh, it looks, it has a tail. And, it has, and, they and so they thought that uh, it was going through all these different evolutionary cycles inside the womb. Well, now they know that that's not the case. But that was taught for a while, and when people saw that, their faith was undermined if they didn't realize that, wait a minute, that's not the truth. That's not what's happening at all. So science has abandoned that, and rightfully so. And so sometimes, just because the, the, the thoughts of the day contradict the Word of God, we shouldn't just say, well... It's on equal footing with the Word of God. If there is something, science is always catching up to what Scripture has already declared as true. Here's a few others. Like, so, for instance, have you guys heard about vestigial organs? Right? So that's where, that's where people have taught that there are certain organs in your body that you don't need anymore. Right? They're just left over from evolution. One of them being the appendix. Right? You, know, you don't need the appendix. That was, that was back when you used to be part bird and had to eat... Uh, had to eat rocks and things like that to help. That's not, that's not what the appendix does. Like the appendix does take some of those stones out, but, without, but one of the other things the appendix does is it helps repopulate the flora of, of your digestive system. 
Like, there's a very valid reason for it. And they didn't understand it for a long time. So when you don't understand it, you know what you say? Oh, it's vestigial. You don't need it anymore. And because they thought it wasn't needed anymore, people didn't study it. Because, oh, it's just left over there. You can take that thing out. All it does is just cause problems. And so out of ignorance, under the flag of science, well, these are left over from evolution. Well, now, now they realize, well, that's not the case. So that argument goes away. And they just, there's more and more and more of these, all right? So um, for years, there was the geocentric theory, which says that the sun revolved around the earth. And that was taught and commonly held. In fact, it caused some people some very great difficulties when they put a heliocentric or a sun-centered um, model. Copernicus was one of them, right? And so he suffered a little bit of difficulty because there was some truth there. Now, um, but people believe that. Um, there, were, there, were, uh, there were notions that um, Columbus would sail off the edge of the earth because the earth was flat, right? That the, um, there are others uh, that thought the earth was supported by solid pi uh, pillars. Um, uh, I mean, there's, there's all, all kinds. There, there was a thought early on that um, it's called the pre-formation theory is that instead of eggs inside of a woman, they thought they were actually just super miniaturized versions of, of fully grown humans, right? That as they grew inside, that was what they looked like. They didn't understand, so they just assumed, well, they just started really small and just kept growing, right? But we know that's not the case. Um, uh, so, I mean, there was the thought um, that the human brain was consisted of they had earth, wind, fire, and water, right? So the, the brain was consisted of earth, right? So you just had a bunch of dirt in your head is really what was, what was thought. And so you think about, um, I mean, they looked at astrology and looked at the stars to determine them. But here's, here's what's interesting. Across 1,600 centuries, right, as the Bible's being written, there is not one single theory one single um, thing in the Bible that has turned out to be false, right? So I can go and find what they believed just a just hundred years ago, what they believed on certain things. And, and so you wouldn't use a textbook from a hundred years ago. You don't use a textbook in school from 10 years ago, right? But you know what textbook I use right here that's the exact same as it's been for 2,000 years roughly, right? And so when you think about what science is and how it works, that's kind of the basis when we're talking about the Bible and science. And so um, what we must make sure is, is that when we look, God is the author of nature. Genesis chapter 1, God is creating the heavens and the earth, right? He's setting forth all of, all of the order of the universe. He's creating all the matter. He's creating in the beginning. That's time. God created, here's matter, so he's creating so both time and matter and setting all of these rules into place at the very beginning. So if there's any, any authority, any source that would know what is true and right with respect to science, it's going to be God. Now God didn't set out, here's his science book, but everything that he writes in here is true. Whereas I can't pick up a science book from 150 years ago and find it being flawless unless, of course, it's empty entirely, right? Because of how wrong they were on so many different things. And so as we look at God is not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. He is the author of nature and he is the source of scriptures.
So here's a few things that I want us to think about. So when someone says, um, um, when we talk about the Bible and science, it's amazing that 20 centuries ago, right? At 20 centuries ago, here the Bible is predicting things, or not predicting things, is stating things that are absolutely fact and have not been disproven by science because they're true. There was a fellow, he was a mathematician, a logician, a, um, a philosopher, uh, basically the scientist of the day, right? A multidiscipline scientist, and his name was Bertrand Russell. And, and uh, he was living, um, um, I think he died in the 1900s, so, um, but about 65 years ago, roughly, something along those lines, he stated, there is no reason why the world could not have come into being without a cause, nor, on the other hand, is there any reason why it should not have always existed. So he was perfectly fine with saying it's always existed, and he was also perfectly fine with saying, well, it could have just come into existence on its own. Right, so you see, and this, is, this was someone who was very well respected. So when we look at science, sometimes you have the scientist who is wearing the white lab coat, and he's the the, the holy, the high priest of, of knowledge, and here he is presenting it, and anyone who believes in that God created the earth in six days, or that the earth is only about 6,000 years old, certainly you must be, you must be foolish. You must be darkened of eyes. You don't understand what the Bible has to say about the matter. But when I look into the Word of God, it's very clear what he says has happened, and again, Science is unable to disprove it. And there's lots of reasons why they try to disprove it. And science isn't necessarily anti-theist. It's not anti-God in every instance. But what happens is, is when you try to describe any and everything with only natural means, then what you've done is you've removed the basis of your argument that there's no opportunity for supernatural. And if you say there is no supernatural, there is no God, then I have to create some sort of model that explains what I'm seeing, and that's why we have evolution. Because the only way that I can get from almost nothing to, to where I am today, I'm going to have to make something. It had to work there gradually, right? And I'm going to have to have time. And so they work to try to explain what's going on. Well, they may actually have what's called a valid argument on certain things, where they are stepping their way through. And this seems right, and this seems right, and step by step is a valid argument, but it's not a sound argument because the premise, the basis of the argument, is based upon the fact that there is no supernatural, there is no God. And when we start with that, then we can easily be led astray. And when our children, if they go off to school and they are taught that, they see this logical reasoning that seems okay, but the problem is they never examined the premise because they weren't grounded in the faith. And if we don't ground them in the faith, they're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're going to be carried about and carried away. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Somebody have the King James Version, the original King James Version. I know there's a few of them out here. Someone. There you go. All right. So, Erwin, read Numbers chapter 23, verse 22. And I want to make a comment before you get there. So there's a reason why I want him to read out of the King James, because specifically that version might be a little different than yours. So sometimes folks will claim the Bible is inaccurate. The Bible, scientifically, is just fantasy, 
And you can't trust what the Bible has to say. And one of the reasons why they say it is because of Numbers chapter 23, verse 22. Erwin, if you'd read that for us, please. So had the strength of a unicorn. Well, we all know unicorn, that's a mythical creature, not real. So since it's a unicorn, well, then the Bible's talking about this. I can't believe this, right? Well, the problem is, is when you think about, um, you think about that, this is an issue where the King James translators had a problem. This is, this is a, not a reflection of what God's word was in the Hebrew, right? When you look at what the Hebrew there, the Hebrew word is R-E-E-M. I'm not going to, re-em, re-em, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew expert, right? But it's referring to the wild ox, which maybe your version may actually say, and it's more accurately translated. But if somebody didn't know any better and you're reading this, I can say, look, you believe in unicorns. Turn to Numbers chapter 23. And you pull out your King James and you're reading like, oh, it does say unicorns. Well, this must not be true. And then you cast it aside. So we must be cautious and careful to listen and understand and investigate what's going on because when, when folks cast and say, oh, the Bible doesn't teach the truth on this, we must look. But there's not false science in the Bible. Now, you have writings of yesteryear, right, throughout the centuries that are written by humans. And so you know that they're going to be changing throughout the years, right? So Aristotle, he was a Greek philosopher, and so I mentioned that he said that the brain was a compound of earth and water. My apologies, I got a little ahead. And he's also said, further taught that the human brain was larger in men than in women. And he also suggested that the region of the heart in man is hotter than in animals. Well, in fact, that's not the case. Our temperature is actually lower. But you see all these things. Like this guy, he is, this is the, this is the biggest brain, uh, or dirt and water guy, right? This is the biggest brain of the day. And you see the foolishness that's being taught. Now, this is l well, well in advance of what we're going to read here in a little bit from what Moses had to write. And so I, the reason why I'm bringing up some of these foolish statements and absurdities is I want us, when we step back at the end of this lesson, I want us to see, man, the Bible was written this long ago, and there's not a single inconsistency. Like, the things that it's teaching, if people would have followed that throughout the centuries... Now, if they would have followed some of these tenets, people would have lived, people wouldn't have died these deaths. And I'm going to show you some of those things where, where, where if science of the day would have uh, followed some of the prescriptions of the Bible, they would have been a little better. In fact, there, is a, um, there was a document called the Papyrus Ebers, right? And it's a medical text. It was written in Egypt in the 16th century B.C. Okay, so think about this. This is 1,600 years before Christ. There's a prescription in it that says to prevent one from losing their hair, and when it starts to fall out, here's the remedy. So, Jim, pay close attention. Here's what it says. To apply a mixture of six fats, namely those of the horse, the hippopotamus, the crocodile, the cat, the snake, and the ibex. And to strengthen it, you should anoint it with the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey, and then just rub it on your head, and your hair will grow back, right? So we read this, why aren't people, why aren't bald people the world around doing this? Because it doesn't work, right? But this is what was, this is what it was written. And what's interesting is, I think, and I, I read somewhere, and I should have written it on my notes, there were like 800 prescriptions in this papyrus that was found. 
Right? So here, let me ask you a question. Where was Moses raised? Egypt, Egypt right? Was he schooled in the way of the Egyptians? Somebody turn to um, Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Whoever gets there first, read it. Acts 7, 22. So this is Stephen. I'm giving you a little... Uh, Stephen is talking, and, he's t and basically he's giving his defense, and he's running through the history of the Jews as he's getting ready to get up to the point of Christ. And you notice that they're not arguing with him as the Pharisees are listening. They're like, yep, that's fine, yep, that's fine, yep, that's fine. And so this statement they're in agreement with. Now eventually they're going to be in disagreement with Stephen and he's going to end up dying because of it. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, what does it say? So here he is. He was instructed in all the ways of the Egyptians, right? So he was taught and schooled up. If you want to be properly schooled, the person who's probably going to have the most access to information in Egyptian times is going to be Pharaoh's household, right? And where do you think Moses is sitting? He's Pharaoh's daughter. And so he's raised up and he has learned in all of their ways. Now, what's interesting is, is as I'm reading about it, Egypt is well known during this time period for being the most medically advanced civilization in existence at that point, right? Now, I've told you already one or two of them. Now, you can see, now I'll tell you, they were advanced in some respects. I mean, we're still, when we go find a mummy, like, they're, they're still, they've, they've been able to preserve this, right? So they do a better job of preserving corpses than we can, or that we have historically. I don't know about can now, but, so they knew some things, right? So they were medically advanced. They were scientifically advanced, but yet, here's what they're doing. They're making all these ridiculous suggestions, and so... Um, here's what I want us to, uh, here's what I want to uh, point out a couple things about um, the good old Egyptians. So, let's see, where is it at here? Let me find it because it was too long of a, a reading for me to hold here. All right, so, so when you think about Moses writing, I know that Moses was inspired of God because the things that he wrote were not the same things that he were taught as he was schooled up in the ways of the Egyptians. He was inspired, right? So here are some of the things that the Egyptians did, right? So when Moses is talking about health, when Moses is talking about medical well-being, all of these things he's talking about, this, some of them are serving as symbols for God, for sanctification, for holiness, but some of them also are for medical reasons. So some of them, as germ spreading, epidemics, disease control, communal sanitation, as he's talking about all these things, these are things they didn't understand at the time. And so in this Ebers papyrus, right, this was found in 1872, all right, here's what's going on. They, I'll give you one of the prescriptions. Anybody ever get a splinter in their hand? Yeah, me too. So let me tell you what they thought you should do. In order to draw splinters out of the flesh you should take worm blood, mole, and donkey dung, right? So what you're doing is, now here's what's interesting about dung, is it's loaded with tetanus. So you're rubbing tetanus in an open wound. Sound like a good idea? So now you're going to die of lockjaw after you're trying to pull that, that out of your hand. So you think about, this is the science of the day that's going on. This is what's being told. There's more, right? I mean, um, some of them, they're... I, I don't even want to read them out here. I mean, some of them, they're so bad, right? So I'll give you an example. They also believed in this thing called, and this is a little uh, uncut, is good and laudable pus, so infection, right? 
So they thought that that meant the bad was coming out of them. So you know what they did is they learned very quickly how to make it, how to make more of it, right? So when you got cut, you know what you did is you deliberately infected your wounds so that you would have more of this coming out of you, which is healthy, right? So, so this is how they thought they were. So here, let me rub the nastiest thing I can rub in this wound in order to get all of this out. So they had all of these thoughts that all of this vile filthiness that we're quivering at here, and rightfully so, they recognize. Now, when you look at what Moses is saying, and uh, on the contrary, right, so Moses is saying just exactly the opposite. Like, all the way up to 1847, right, there's this fellow over in Austria. I'm not going to pr- try to pronounce his name, but he's fairly famous, right? And so he's in this hospital ward, and he's observing all of these women who are coming in to this state-of-the-art um, uh, birthing center in Austria in the 1870s, and he's noticing that these women who check in, 18% of them die, right? That's a pretty bad mortality rate. But then he looked around and he noticed, and so these are the ones who are being treated by the best doctors in the land. But then he looks over here and he sees these women who are giving birth with midwives and only 3% of them are dying. Well, wait a minute here. He sees this and he realizes something's up, I need to figure out what's going on. So what he starts to observe what's happening. And so as people were dying, he's having these doctors and they're dealing with the cadavers, they're doing the autopsies, and then they just merely wipe the blood off for convenience if, with the same rag that they've been using all day long, and then they come over here. So they're just transferring all of this, these germs and this infection and all this vile stuff over after they're touching this dead body they're now dealing on a medical situation. Now you think about what the, what the Bible says. Now when he realizes that, I mean, because you think about it, they didn't understand what germs were. And do you think that Moses understood the nature of a germ specifically? No, he didn't. They didn't understand it in, in the 1800s. How was he going to understand it? But what he did is he pre- prescribed, uh, there was a prescription he gave, right? And so he's saying, do not, you know, if you, touch, if you touch a dead body. Here, let me find the, let me find the verse here real quick for you. And so, um, if you would, um, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 19. And we're going to read verse 11 and 12 in Numbers chapter 19. Now, if old Sensenheimer, or whatever his name was, right, the guy from, uh, um, yeah, that's right, um, the guy from Austria... If he would have uh, followed some of these tenets that were in the Old Testament, it might have been a little better here. It says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day then he shall be clean. But if he doesn't purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. So you were basically deemed unclean. And if you were unclean, I'm not allowed to have contact with you. Do you think I'm going to spread infection after I'm handling and I'm putting a dead body? They had to bury people. So somebody's handling those dead bodies. Somebody is the, is the mortician, so to speak, right? And so the mortician of, in that culture is going to have to deal with his, I don't know if it was a profession per se, but had to deal with being unclean there for a period of time. He's not contaminating them, right? Think about quarantine. Turn to Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13. So 
So here we're talking about leprosy specifically, but there's some things that are interesting. In Leviticus chapter 13, verse 46, it says, He shall be unclean. And all the days that he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. That's a quarantine, right? That's something that, that evidently was not understood by many. But yet here God is prescribing, if you have this infectious, contagious disease, you have to stay outside of the camp. You've got to dwell alone. You need to stay over there. And so they had these leper colonies. In fact, I'll tell you, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a joke teller, but I'll tell you this real, real quick. It was uh, my, I think it was my first time to Ghana. It may have been my second, but I think it was my first time to Ghana. This fellow comes up to me, right, and he he's, reaches his hand out, shake my hand, and he says, he says, will you please pray for me? And I, um, and I said, sure, I'll pray for you. What, what do you want me to pray for? And he says, he says, I have leprosy, right, as he's shaking my hand. And I'm thinking, uh, like I can only picture what's going to happen to me at this point, right? And so, uh, um, needless to say, I didn't get leprosy, um, fortunately, but um, uh, you think about, like, there was a reason I was concerned, because if my immune system was compromised, I could have come down with, with that form of leprosy. That's the reason why he caught it. And so, here the Bible's teaching a quarantine. Look at the verse before it, interestingly enough. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 45. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn. In other words, you need to make sure that you give an outward signal that I know that you're no good, right? I don't want you slipping up on me. I want this to be like, hey, unclean, unclean kind of thing, right? And, on, and his head bare, and he shall, watch what it says, he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. Right, you see, why, why in the world would you cover your mouth when you're, if you're sick and contagious and you're talking to somebody? Right, so we realize that now, right? My son sometimes will sneeze and he will just point it in whatever direction he wants to point it. I'm like, son, don't do that. You need to sneeze into your elbow That's what you, so it doesn't spread everywhere or into some sort of a napkin that you're going to throw away. Right, because I recognize, I know how germs work. They didn't understand how germs work. The Bible here, why, well, the Bible didn't say germ contagions could spread through, like, but the principles that are taught in the Bible are, are harmonious with what we understand today and something that they didn't understand 150 years ago, much less 2,000, 3,000 years ago, right? And so you think about you, this, this should be an eye-opening experience as we're looking at how... Like, because the Bible, again, not a science textbook. It's, we're not going to go through this and start reading about, but it, the things that it teaches are indeed accurate. And when we pay attention to what's being said, I mean, science is not limited to just medical science, right? So you think about, you think about as it's referencing history, right? So you have all the history that's in the Bible. So for a while, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I, I have some notes on that here, right? So... He, the principles in the Bible are teaching quarantine. They're teaching isolation. They're teaching don't spread contamination, right? These are things. The, the Egyptians, where Moses was raised, they're rubbing dung in open wounds, right? And, and here the Bible is telling us don't spread germs, right? Do you see the superiority to material that's written at the exact same time? from the exact same place, and why, why would it be, right? Let's say that we don't believe the Bible's the Word of God, right? Why would it be that this book, 
This book is right and tells us exactly what we should do, and we can't find any of this ridiculousness in it. But over here, out of the 800, 780, 780 of them are ridiculous, and the other 20 are questionable if they do anything, right? I mean, the reason is because this originated with the author of truth. This is the reason why. Right, so, like, I thought about how am I going to approach this? Like, it's not going, the, this, this class isn't going to teach. So let's, let's move to circumcision, right? Let's think about circumcision for a moment. Not exactly the most pleasant of topics, but here we're going to go. So this idea of circumcision, it was required of every Jewish male, right? So when, when were Jewish children to be circumcised? On the eighth, everybody knows the eighth day, right? Why the eighth day? Not pain levels, pardon me. You bleed less, blood clots, right? And so well, here's what's interesting. So I want to read a little, so since this is the Bible and science, and that was signed to me, right? So Genesis chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, God's instructing this, right? And so here you have, and, and basically it's what's saying, they must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in, in fact, I want to read, I'll read the whole section. Uh, Genesis 17, verses 12 through 14. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and also who is bought must be circumcised. When? The eighth day, it said, right? Who is this being, who is this being told to here? Who? Abraham, right? Abraham's being told this. Abraham, he's a contemporary with whom? Is he a contemporary with Moses? No, well before Moses, right? This is the father of the Jews. Do you think that Abraham had figured out, like, after, you know, a few thousand circumcisions, which day was the best day to do this on? Or, like, if you think about it with some common sense, like, here's the eighth day. Now, if I'm reading this 200 years ago, I would go, okay, God picked the eighth day. Why did he pick the eighth day? I don't know why he picked the eighth day. He picked the eighth day, and so I'm going to do it the eighth day. And sometimes I don't know why. I don't know why. God may not have revealed it to me. I may learn at some point in time a possible reason why. And so here, as you're going through, so as you're looking at circumcision, right? Circumcision has some health effects that as over time they've determined, right? It reduces the incidence of urinary tract infections in boys significantly. Um, in fact, um, uncircumcised children have a 10 to 20 times more, a 10 to 20 times more urinary tract infections um, in, compared with circumcised boys, right? So there's a health. You think, now think about it, right? If you get a urinary tract infection, you go to the doctor and you get an antibiotic, right? Or you can avoid it, right? So in this instance, it's avoiding it for 10 to 20 times more, right? And so it also virtually eliminates entirely cancer, in that area, right? So that's interesting. So now that doesn't mean that that you have to, but like this, these are these are these are positive positive reasons. So there was a fellow by the name of L. Emmett Holt. In 1953, he wrote a 1,500-page work about modern medicine, and he wrote about hemorrhage. I can't even pronounce it. The bleeding disease of the newborn, right? Okay, hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic, whatever, you got it, right? So the bleeding disease of the newborn. I can't talk right now, okay? And they identified spontaneous bleedings among newborns. And that happens. And so today, when your child is born, they immediately give them a shot of vitamin K. Immediately. And the reason is 
to prevent this from occurring. Science today recognizes this, right? And so this is here he's talking. It's caused primarily by a decreased level of prothrombin, which in turn is caused by insufficient levels of vitamin K. Now, you're like, well, what does that have to do with, with circumcision on the eighth day, right? So children's susceptibility, in other words, that they're going to, is peculiar or higher between the second and the fifth days of life. So there's, a, there's an issue there. However, he says that um, it dips from about 90% of normal on the day of birth to about 35%, really low on the third day outside of the womb. And after the third day, it begins to climb. And on the eighth day of the child's life, the available prothrombin level is approximately 110% normal or 20% higher than it was on the first day. So it peaks. It's, it's even a little extra, right? Almost like it was designed that way so that when, when you end up circumcising or cutting a child, uh, the skin away from a child, that they're not going to bleed out. Right now, do I know that that's absolutely the reason why God selected the eighth day? I don't. But as we look through and we see God's providence at work in times, we see some of these, see some of these things. So you can look through and think about what's being, what, what we know about the Bible and science. So there's also several thoughts about, just making sure i got enough time, uh, several thoughts about um, astronomy. Right, so in 150 B.C., long after Moses, long after Moses, right, Hipparchus estimated that there were less than 3,000 stars, okay? Uh, about 300 years after that, a fellow by the name of Ptolemy says, um, I think it's going to be a little bit more than that, okay? Now, today, the latest estimates have us roughly about 100 septillion stars. Now, septillion, if you don't know what septillion is, I, I you know you'd think, well, it sounds like something seven. What it is, it's a one followed by 26 zeros. It's a really big number, right? So science, is a science started at 3,000. We've worked up to basically almost an innumerable number, right? Almost like an innumerable, uh, oh, the stars are almost too many to number, right? And it's interesting, Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, and Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 2. So let's look at those real briefly here, and I want to show what the Bible has to say. And think about it. If you're Ptolemy, if you're at 150 B.C. and you're believing the science of the day, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. So he's talking about here the dust of the earth being numbered. You come over to Jeremiah chapter... 33, I didn't write that reference down either, I did, Jeremiah 33 in verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, you know what the host of heaven is referring to? All those stars in heaven, right? So all these bodies that are up in heaven, the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So here he's saying, look, Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the dust on the ground. You're not even going to be able to number them, right? And also like the stars in heaven. But if I were following science, I'd say, well, the dust on the ground, I can't really count. But I can count the stars. There's about 3,000 of them. So the Bible's wrong, right? Now you see 
as we continue to advance in science, we catch up to what the Bible has taught. Now, the Bible didn't put that in there as a reference to teach us how many stars there were, right? But it's something that we can learn because everything that it states is true. And it states that the stars are innumerable, right? Or the stars are so like the sand. It didn't say innumerable, like as too many to number, right? And I can tell you, you ask me to number one with, with I don't remember how many zeros were after that, what, 26 zeros after it, that's too many for me to number, right? I, I, that's, that's a number that's, that's too big for me. Now, when you think about, as you look at science and you look at what's being said, and you look at, like for instance, science also teaches things like uniformitarianism says that the world has always remained the same, right? So you look at what today's doing, that's exactly what it's been doing for, for as long as the earth. And so then there's another school of thought called catastrophism, where things on the earth have gone through some real turmoil, some catastrophe, right? If only I could find an instance in the Bible that talked about a catastrophe that would explain, a worldwide catastrophe that would really shake up the way that the earth looked and would bury all kinds of fossils all on this interesting, like if there was only something, right? Like the, a global flood perhaps, right? So when we think about that and you begin to look at, at fossils that are buried and why they're buried the way they're buried and where they're buried, right? You're standing on the top of Mount Everest and you're looking down and you see fossils of seashells Right? I, I, I don't know about you, but um, ocean level rise doesn't typically make it to the top of Mount Everest regularly, right? <laughs> uh, unless, of course, there's some sort of upheaval, like a worldwide flood that exceeded the highest mountains. And then this stuff gets spread there. You think about as science, like when I, if you see that, that should be like, oh, that's exactly what's happening. And you notice what the Bible, you notice what the Bible is saying and, and the truth, and the truth of the Bible. All right, I've got a few more notes here that I want to go through before I need to skip some because I'm not going to make it here. Um, one of the things that's interesting is when you look at the fossil record, not only is, is it defined by the flood, but you also see types, right? So types are like when you have in Genesis... Each one of these species, each one of these types, when the Bible refers to them as kinds, are going to each one after their own kind, right? They're going to continue to go forth each one after their own kind. So you have all of these, all of these animals. Well, if you were an evolutionist, you should see, especially since it's over just millions and millions and millions of years, you know, Carl Sagan saying billions, right? This is a long time. I should see tons, it should be a gradual progression. I should see from the smallest working its way all the way up to the largest, I should see all of these transitional fossils. I should see, I mean, it should be obvious. I should see more of the middle stuff than I see of the present stuff, right? But that's not what I see. I see it going from, from almost nothing, right, which is all those small creatures that were on the bottom of the ocean that get covered over with sand and fossilized from the flood, and then all the other animals that end up falling in, right? And then you end up seeing something called the Precambrian, the Cambrian explosion, right? So suddenly, all of these advanced creatures just show up on the scene. Well, how do they just show up on the scene? Because God created them, right? Right, so we see them showing up on the scene. They didn't work their way there. That's the reason why. So sometimes you'll say, hey, we found the missing link, right? There's no missing link. 
right? I'm here, and you're, I can't even see the other side, and you find one thing that you might could say could fit in here, that's not a missing link. Like, I need to see the chain if you're going to cause me to change my belief. And that doesn't exist. What I find is I find me existing here, or I find something that is roughly similar, but it also, you know, because like we bear some reason. I have two eyes, right? There are lots of things that have two eyes. That doesn't mean that we both develop those eyes because of the same thing. I'm, I, scientists don't even, don't, you know, they have the branching going off, and so all of these things that are shared commonalities, really, it appears almost like it was designed that way, right? Two eyes in case, in case one doesn't work, right? Two ears, two lungs, two kidneys, right? Just accidentally duplication that ends up saving us, right? You think about, think about as the biblical record is telling us about God creating and God and what he did um, specifically with um, the flood in the Genesis account. Now, there are some things, there are some thoughts that I want us to also look at. And specifically, one of the thoughts that I want us to look at is some things that we shouldn't say, things that we should not, arguments that we should not make. And here's the reason why I say that. Sometimes when we talk, we know, we know the answer already. We know that evolution is contrary to what God is, so we know the answer already. So then we'll make really ridiculous arguments sometimes. We'll say, well, if we evolve from apes, how come there's still apes around here, right? We evolve from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? Tell me that one, smart guy. Right? And it sounds really good, except it just shows that we don't understand what they're saying about evolution. And when we teach our children some of these things, and they go and they learn that, wait a minute, that's not what the evolutionist teaches at all. In fact, they're, that, they're not teaching that we evolved from monkeys. They teach that there's a common ancestor. And so, but when we make that argument, and we seem to be basing our position upon that argument, then when that argument gets taken out, then they're like, well, you know what? Mom and Dad really didn't know what they were talking about anyways. I mean, so if Mom and Dad didn't understand the reason why this isn't right, I know more than they do. And suddenly, God, all those things that we taught them just gets pushed off to the side, which is why we should not shy away from addressing some of these very, um, these very issues early on. And so there's a few of them. Like um, several years ago, in fact, it was probably... Um, in the 90s, I remember, um, I remember that there was an email going around, and I worked at the Kennedy Space Center at the time, and so NASA, you, anything that had NASA, people were passing it around, they said, oh, they were, this, some computer system was looking back, and they couldn't figure out why, why, um, why time didn't line up, and then one, one fellow said, oh, hey, look back to when, when uh, God, you know, in Jeremiah, or I mean Joshua chapter 10, uh, when God made the sun stand still and it made an extra, there's the missing day, right? So they, oh, they put that missing day in there. And sure, and oh, but they're 20 minutes off. Okay, well then that's, that's over here. In case, it's a, that's, no, that's, not, that was, that's a complete farce. That's not true at all, right? We don't, they don't look back on time. They can predict forward if everything remains the same, but they can't look back. They can tell you where it would have been, but this whole thing like they could detect a missing day, that's foolishness. And if we say that, then all we do is, is present ourselves as ignorant. Let's present the truth. Let's present this and not try to um, present faith. Like, I'll give you an example. Right? So there are some, there are some fellows um, that have gained some prominence 
who are Bible archaeology hunters, right? And they go out and they've found all kinds of things, right? And there's two guys of, of fair prominence. And what's interesting is these two guys have found, in one instance, the same thing, right? So, but anyways, not, not together. They were different places. So, um, but as, as you go through this and you look at it, like, you want to believe this stuff. Like, oh, man, this is great. We found the Ark of the Covenant. We found, the, we, we found Noah's Ark. We found, and you start going through all these things that they found, right? Well, if these things would have been found, people, reputable, young earth creationists would say, yes, look at this. But when the majority of young earth creationists are saying, no, that's not the case, and they're not endorsing it, we need to be careful about endorsing some of those things and saying, look here. I mean, I would love to see. I mean, sometimes people say, you know, Darwin on his deathbed, he had a confession and he, he became a Christian. It was on his deathbed. He confessed that he, like, I don't care if he did or he didn't. Like, I mean, I hope the guy's soul is okay. I don't mean it that way, right? But it doesn't matter what Darwin believed. What matters is, is what is the truth? And the Bible has taught us what the truth is. Sometimes we'll say, well, evolution's just a theory, right? You know what else is a theory? Gravity is a theory, right? We use that all the time. That doesn't make one right or wrong, right? It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that because gra the theory of gravity means that gravity doesn't exist, right? So we shouldn't try, that's not the reason why I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe in evolution because the premise is that God doesn't exist, that there was no supernatural, that it happened all naturally. And also, if you look at, there's all sorts of things, like, it, let's just assume that every mutation, that's how it is, mutation turns into something else and you just end up growing from pond scum into me eventually, right, through, through beneficial mutations, right? You think about a whale. All of the, the design that's required for it to swim as low as it is to be able to be in ice cold water, the blubber, the heat exchangers in the tongue, the eyes that can see, I mean, just everything about that animal, right? If every mutation was beneficial, there's not enough time. So you know what we need to do? We just need to make the earth older. We'll just keep making it older until we have enough time to make this stuff happen. Right? And so then if I make it long enough, and if I tell you it's old enough, well, then I can make this stuff fit a little easier until I can't, and then I find out a little more. When you look at what DNA is, I mean, that's like a computer program. Think about the wonder of the mind. Like, if we just sit back, the firmament declares his handiwork. I would submit to you, creation declares his handiwork. And so, there was a quote that I really, really enjoy. And I actually used to think it was David Hume, because Thomas Warren quoted it. And I, I spent a little time, too much time, researching this. But the, the quote that was supposedly from David Hume was, No man turns against reason until reason turns against him. And that actually was a quote by Thomas Hobbes. If reason be against a man, a man will be against reason. Which actually was a quote from another fellow in the 1600s. I kept following it back, and I couldn't figure out who the first person was, but I kept tracing it back. But here's the principle, right? Nobody, let's fall, people don't turn against reason. People don't turn against sound thinking until they don't like the conclusion that they're led to. And so if I have the preconceived notion that there is no God, then I'm going to turn against reason and I'm, not go and I'm going to do whatever, I I'm going to turn against the principles of sound logic and reason in order to hold on to my beliefs. We, as Christians, must not do that either. We must take the word of God and apply it equally to our life. 
and not turn against reason. Apply reason. Look at the truth. And so when you think about the Bible and science, right, this was, this was actually a hard lesson for me to try to figure out how I'm going to present it, right? Because the Bible is not designed as a science textbook, but the principles that it has that are scientific are absolutely 100% correct. And we see that, and you think about it. Moses, who would have been writing the similarities. You write something around that day, you're going to be writing similar to what the very best Egyptians would have written because they were the, at the height of, of the world at that day. And we see the foolishness is there. But you look here, no foolishness. Science is continually trying to catch up with the Bible. And the more that we continue, the more that science looks, the more that archaeology is going to reveal these events happen, the more that science is going to declare that, man, the complexity that exists, the design that exists in the way that our blood clots, in the way that our eye works, in the way that anything and everything as we see these things, this is design. This isn't by chance. God's Bible tells us exactly what we need to do. And he also leaves some clues about some things in science that we can check against. While it's not a science textbook, I hope that we can look at it and realize that, that um, the Bible and science are not opposed to one another. But sometimes scientists who, who do not know God and do not have God in their heart will form positions that are contrary to the Word of God. And that's really, that's really the message for this evening. So. I appreciate your attention.